and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. Uh, my name is Hussein. You can follow me at hkizvani on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my name is Phoebe. There's no point giving where you can follow me on Twitter because Twitter doesn't work anymore. But, you know, you know what to do. Uh, this week, we uh, have a very special guest uh, on to talk about actually a really important subject. Uh, we have uh, Ellie Mayo Hagen, who is the ex- head of external engagement at the Good Law Project. Uh, and she has come on to talk about a project that she was working on prior to uh, working at the Good Law Project, but something that we have like spoken about a little bit. Uh, Ellie, how's it going? Good, thank you. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, and thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Uh, uh, as mentioned, uh, some, I, I guess like to sort of intro, before I ask you to sort of intro the project that you were, you were working on, um, I'll sort of give a bit of context as to like uh, how we sort of got to this point. Uh, the thinking about this episode partly came from uh, lots of recent announcements by the British government to, uh, to put like lack of a better phrase, to really ramp up like anti-refugee, anti-immigrant uh, policy in response to uh, increasing amounts of anti-refugee and anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, so that includes uh, plans to ramp up its uh, Rwanda detainee plan uh, to criminalize those arriving to the UK on small boats, like regardless of like the fact that that is basically still illegal. Um, any like lots of sort of hostility from uh, members of the government, as well as members of the opposition in terms of supporting refugees and immigrants uh, through uh, state sponsored systems. Uh, we also have uh, in more re- in like recent weeks, um, far right mobilization outside of hostels and hotels where refugees uh, are said to be staying. In some cases, there are in some cases they aren't. But in any case, like there was a recent one in Nosley that got a lot of media coverage uh, in part because of how big that mobilization was and also just the rhetoric used was something that like I think was deeply, deeply unsettling even for people who like are quite used to watching this stuff. Um, which is to say that like it sort of feels uh, that a lot of the anti-immigrant and anti-refugee rhetoric has really kind of ramped up in a way that even though was sort of or had always kind of been there lingering under the surface seems to now be not only more vocalized but something that is being more openly proposed in terms of policy uh, in quite dangerous ways. Uh, I, I don't know if that's like a good way of sort of introing it, Ellie, but I wondered whether you could talk to us a little bit about that and where, and also the report that, uh, I, I guess like for people who aren't familiar, an introduction to the report that you worked on in terms of how to talk about refugees and uh, immigrate, immigrants, immigration, and who the uh, who the policy paper was sort of directed towards. So um, I made this uh, uh, messaging guide with Freedom From Torture, um, which is a charity that um, does what it says on the tin. It campaigns on behalf of torture survivors. um, And it also does service delivery for torture survivors as well. Um, And the messaging guide was uh, directed at, at mainly at sort of other organizations in the refugee and migration sector, but really anybody we wrote it in such a way that it's very simple to read so that anybody who wants to have persuasive conversations about this issue um, can read it and can use it. And that's everybody from people talking to their families around the dinner table to people organizing in the grassroots to, you know, the refugee council. Mm. Um, and you're right to say, Hussein, that we did, it was, um, inspired if that's if i can use that word uh by the fact that the rhetoric on refugees and migrants has just hurtled to the right in in recent years so mm. in 2009 nick 
Nick Griffin, the former leader of the BNP, British National Party, it's fascist party, um, was in the European Parliament where he called on the EU to sink boats that had uh, asylum seekers in them. And at the time, that was considered to be, you know, a, an opinion that was beyond the pale to the point of murderous. Um, and I think may have got him either kicked out or strongly censured at the European Parliament. Mm. Whereas now, I think you could imagine in a couple of years, our Home Secretary calling for something like that. Mm. Um, and I think that demonstrates how in a relatively short amount of time, the debate has careered off to the right. And I think, I don't want to speak, I'm, I'm going to say I'm not here on behalf of freedom from torture. These are all my own opinions. Mm -hmm. But I do think that a big reason for that is that the right has been very, very good at making emotive arguments about this issue while we, and by that I mean those of us who believe that refugees should be welcomed into this country, as should people who move here for other reasons, mm. um, we have failed, basically. We failed to make a case for, for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into as we, as we talk more. Mm. I, had, I had a question, which is just a sort of a, sort of a clarification. Um, I'm very, very against uh, the uh, the fact checking tendency, as listeners to this show will will know, because I I don't think it is a productive way of uh, of persuading people of what you think is right. I think it's a way of seeming like uh, like a know it all and uh, and a nerd. To be honest, <laughs> to be honest with you, I think that very few people. I certainly am not amenable to somebody barking numbers and stats and percentages at me this is not something that's going to change my mind on on a subject so there's no particular reason why i would think that it would work on anybody else but with that in mind on the question of legality i know that there is a, that there is a great uh, great wish for the present government to attempt to make small boat uh, small boat crossings illegal but it is my understanding that they are also uh, protected under under the international law provision, provisions of the Geneva Convention, and it's actually quite difficult to to actually make it illegal. Is that is that is that right, Elia? Or if I am am I labouring under a misapprehension? No, that's right. Um, the, basically, there are individual schemes that different countries have for different different types of refugees. So, you know, in this country, for example, we have particular schemes for Ukrainian refugees. And the Refugee Convention was set up to to sort of circumvent that because so that if you were really in, in like real danger, um, but you didn't fall into the category of a refugee that could apply for one of these schemes, that you could still make a claim for asylum in any country. So, yeah, from a purely legal point of view, it it does it. I do. I I don't I don't want to get too deep into the sort of legality yeah, side of, of things, course. but like yeah, it does go against the refugee convention. Convention, it seems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. I wanted to talk about the report. Um, very uh, well. I would like to start off with like talking about the report. Uh, because like there are several pages in there where it's and I think when you were talking about like communication and like what effective communication looks like, the impression that I got and one of the reasons why I was sort of thinking about 
who this is sort of designed for um is that what's it what in the, what you see what sort of seem to be saying is that there are lots of people who has seemingly like quite good intentions in terms of wanting to make the case for being uh for the uk being like a country that welcomes refugees that welcomes immigrants uh one that also like doesn't and i think that that fact checking tendency can also sort of like feed into the idea of trying to challenge people who uh are not only extremely hostile to immigrants but also very much would like the boat would like like every dinghy in the channel to be like gunned down um to then be like all oh, that well actually like this is sort of illegal or, like kind of throwing stats and everything um I guess what I'm, yeah, the the sort of like thing I'm trying to get to is that what it what the report seems to be trying to do is to say to people who have like very good and like who or who have good intentions, maybe the type of language that you're using is not particularly effective, mm. not just on a strategic level, but also in like on a moral level as well. And I wondered whether you could talk to us a bit about what types of like. So I think like some certain phrases that you use or that you that the report has kind of pointed out things like, for example, no one is illegal. Um, is like a good way into sort of like, okay, here is how you take, here is someone who is like trying to make a case, but here are the reasons why it's not effective. So what phrases are were you finding or like what phrases do you often see that kind of fit that tendency? Um, and what is like, what, what does the report sort of suggest that we kind of move towards? So um, I will give you five. I will try to keep it short. So the first most common one is uh, what we we called it patient diagnostics because it reminded us of, you know, in like uh, hospital dramas where the doctor dispassionately reads your diagnosis out to to, to the patient. Um, that sort of. Uh, how a lot of organizations and, you know, when you read quotes in the paper from like refugee organizations responding to certain stories, it will be very dry, very bland and very technical. Mm. My my theory about that is that it's because the other side is so sort of full of bile and so and rage and emotion um, that I think our side thinks, well, we better be reasoned and calm. And so then people will think, oh, they're really reasonable. But actually, we're not reasonable. What we are is forgettable because mm -hmm. language like that is boring and it doesn't stick in the mind. Um, so I think basically like when with that kind of language, you may as well not say anything at all because it just doesn't mm. it doesn't stick in people's mind and we can we can test this and we can show you know I've done experiments that have shown that the, the boring language when you ask people even seconds after they've just heard the message when you ask them to recall it they won't remember what they've just heard mm. so if um, if you don't remember a message what's the point of it existing mm. the second is um passive language so our side rarely talks about who is responsible and what their motivations might be mm -hmm. Um, the right is really good at this. You know, we all know who is responsible in the eyes of the right. It's the woke mob. Uh -huh. And yeah. the woke mob is, um, it's a Rorschach test. It means different things to different people, but that is quite useful for the right because it means whatever you want it to mean in a particular moment. Um, whereas we don't really blame anybody. I think in terms of the organizations that work on this officially, I think there's like a bit of a, a sort of conflict going on in the sense that they feel they have to lobby the home office. So they're worried about uh, attacking the home office too directly when they also have to lobby them. Um, I also think that the issue of refugees is not necessarily a left issue. Like the most radical left groups you can think of care about it a lot. 
But actually, there's also a lot of people on the center that care about it a lot. It's like a big, broad spectrum. And I think the closer that you get to the center as well, the more the more there is a tendency to think that this can kind of be sorted out between adults. And that also leads to passive language. Yeah. And um, and it may be that there is practical reasons to not go too hard in the home office. And that's not really for me to decide. But the, the consequence of that is that the language is ineffective. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is negation. That's what you were talking about uh, there, Hussein, which is... Uh, it is not illegal to claim asylum. No human being is illegal. There's been research that shows that these emotive words like asylum and illegal will stay in people's minds longer than the word not. Mm. So wow, what okay. you're doing by saying no human being is illegal is you're just invoking this idea of criminality in mm-hmm. people's minds. And um, you're also asking them to judge these people based on what is and isn't legal rather than rather than on their inherent worth as human beings. And I've done focus groups where I've seen participants go to and fro about like the idea of refugees coming to this country. They're not sure what they think. They sort of on one hand, they're quite nervous, but then on the other hand, they like, they know they should do the right thing. As soon as you start talking about illegality and criminality, people's compassion just shuts off. I've seen it happen. Right. Interesting. And they're immediately like, no, if they've, if they've come here illegally, then no. And so as soon as you start talking about that, even if you're trying to negate it, you're actually reinforcing the idea mm. that the ultimate, uh, thing that matters in this issue is illegality, which obviously, as we know, is terrible for those of us who want refugees to be able to come here because there is no legal way of coming here, really, particularly Mm. not for the most at-risk refugees. Um, And then we do use moral frames, which which is good. So we do talk about morality, but instead of really talking about it as a sort of thread that runs deeply through our communications, you know, instead of speaking to the audience's best selves and encouraging them to think about right and wrong, we actually, we just use it in a way that goes back to this patient diagnostics way of speaking. You know, we Mm. say inhumane conditions, this is immoral, but these are just, you know, these are words. People need something more than that, you know, um, so, so we don't, we use it a bit, but we don't use it rightly. And then the final one is, um, we use the language of pity a lot. I absolutely hate the phrase fleeing. I mm. think that's what we use to describe animals. animals. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I, think, I, you I, comple- I completely, I completely agree. Whenever I see the word fleeing, it makes me think, no, 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 no. Yeah. And also, you know, during the Trump years there was a lot of people locked in cages and unsurprisingly the refugees that I've spoken to and that Freedom from Torture spoke to while we were doing this project said that they did not like being described in that way and I think so and if you imagine that you were being described in some of the ways that we describe refugees I don't think you would like it you know I think we strip refugees of their dignity by talking about things like torture, sexual abuse in graphic detail. You know, if something like that happened to the people listening to this right now, would you like a a sort of a a stranger Mm -hmm. who has much more social power than you talking about it in graphic detail? 
it dehumanizes refugees by yeah. talking about them solely in that way. And it also communicates to the audience, you have nothing in common with these people. Because mm-hmm. look at this crazy shit that they've been through. It's nothing like your life whatsoever. Yeah. And unfortunately, in Australia, a similar project was carried out in Australia to the one that we did with Freedom from Torture. And unfortunately, um, it was done by Anat Shankrazorio, who's one of the best communicators in the world and, and sort of taught me everything I know. And they found there that um, it makes people less likely to want refugees to live in their communities because they think, well, if they've been tortured like this, maybe they're a bit mentally unstable. And I don't necessarily know that I want that mm. kind of person mm. next to me, which is obviously very cruel. Mm. But, you know, I think taken all of the reasons taken together, I think... Um, make a persuasive case for not talking in the language of pity. Yeah, I quite yeah. I quite agree. And of course and, and of course I think the thing is and this is something that I was just saying to Ellie um before we started recording is that one of the things which is uh it's very much it's very much something which I think um is a way of falling into you can fall into um sort of hopelessness and despair uh if you do if you spend a, if you spend a lot of time online and if your only real familiarity with leftist spaces and leftist organizing takes place online and you can also uh, be confronted uh, with people who agree with you who think that as soon as somebody uh, becomes cruel in uh, in these discussions that they can be safely written off um, uh, they can be safely written off as if not a fascist and certainly fascist adjacent and that I don't think is I don't think is productive, and I also don't, and I also think is quite irresponsible because uh, because unless some some efforts are made to uh, to engage with people um, who who aren't who aren't necessarily necessarily cruel, who aren't who aren't who aren't evil people, um, then the less likely it is that we're going to be able to make a dent in the extremely effective emotional rhetoric of of the right but i'm so interested in what you say about not using the language of pity and uh the idea that if you describe the terrible things that has ha- that happened to these people you are more likely to uh to to present this this picture of refugees as sort of being not quite of the same species as you almost and I think that yeah fleeing and 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 fleeing torture fleeing 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 um is is exactly the sort of thing that paints this picture of um of a kind of of a sort of terrified creature and depending on depending on what your political commitments are there is a sort of tendency to think of that as something that you want to keep away from you if you are sort of more to mean, leaning to the right, and it's something, and it, and there's a kind of almost sort of noble savage um, framing if you are if you are on the left. Um, and the thing that makes me think of this the most, I don't know if you either of you saw this uh, this Channel Four sitcom that was on last year, which was about a which is about a family, a, a white English family, who find a Syrian man who has stowed away in their car, and he and they invite him to live with them. And it was a it was a missed opportunity. This 
program. It was not very good at all. Um, but the the bloke of this family who doesn't want this who doesn't want this refugee living with them says like I don't know, know what you're talking about. You're not. He's not Paddington Bear. And the woman says yes, he is. And this was kind of hailed as this wonderful line. And I was like, what are you fucking talking about? He's not. He's a person. He's not Paddington Bear. You can't present people as either hostile creatures or or nice creatures that have to be protected. You have to present them as people, just like the people that Mm. you are trying to persuade. They are just like you. They have, you know, they have families, and some of them might not be individually particularly nice people. They don't have to be. It doesn't, that doesn't interfere with their essential humanity. And I think that's what, that's like the point that we're trying, that we're sort of trying to make it is like how to, how to count, how to counter the dehumanizing uh, Such rhetoric. Such a bizarre line. From Sorry, also, I just, yeah, he's, conf- yeah, he is Paddington Bear. Who writes I, like that anyway? I, yeah, I know, I know uh, we're getting away uh, from yeah, the point. No, uh, but no, 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 but I, but it, but I think that, I think that it's, very expressive of a particular mm. kind of mentality, which I think should be challenged and countered from our side as well. Um, I think a really good example of a program that does this incredibly well um, is Mo on Netflix. Mm. Yeah. You seen that? Yeah, yeah. I've seen He's it. a yeah. Palestinian undocumented guy. Um, yeah. I think that's a really good example of like sort of showing the, I mean, I, you know, it's not, I don't, I, I don't know what his motivations were for writing it, but I think it's something, a good, really good example of something that's deeply political, but doesn't feel like it and yeah. actually is very persuasive, but you barely notice it's happening. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think he did an interview because I remember when it came out, I read an interview that he did. Um, for a British magazine, I think, where I think he, every, the, his motivations actually mirrored everything that you were saying, which was like he was sort of sick of these types of shows where like refugees were kind of either sort of sidelined, uh, made into kind of like um, sort of side jokes or pitied upon. And I think that was it. It was just like, why can't you sort of come? And especially when you're a Palestinian as well. And so you've got that whole storyline about like, you know, your inability to move literally because you don't have documents um, and like how that puts your life under threat. But he was like, well, what if you were just sort of a fuck up, right? What if you just sort of like were like a bit of a hustler and kind of like a bit of a screw up um, and not quite like, and almost sort of um, a, a retort to the idea of not just like the ideal of a good immigrant, but also the expectations of this type of structure around, you know, because I think the Paddington line, despite how awful that is and how I'm going to like think about that for a while, um, it really does reflect this kind of broader thing where it's like we've, we've sort of gone past the good Im- immigrant thing now to this idea that of a deserving refugee. And one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading your paper is that the, the kind of deserving refugee actually plays in both like right and left spaces uh, in almost like the same way. So for the right is very much of a suspicion. I think every time you sort of see videos of like people kind of coming in from uh, into the channel from small boats, if you look at comment sections, I'm, I guarantee you there'll be a few that are along the lines of like, oh, you know, will this person like work for the NHS or like, you know, another doctor and all that type of stuff, right? Mm. The idea that like these people are not exceptional and therefore they are like not worthy of being saved. Mm. Um, but in like the sort of like progressive spaces where you know, it tends to believe the narrative is still like about kind of being more pro-refugee and pro-immigrant. 
the same they often the same argument is used like you know oh you know they, that these are these people like have had like you know professional lives and like they can really be a benefit to our economy benefit to our community so it's still very much just like utility but it kind of present but in both cases the refugee the immigrant is still kind of presented as like almost not it, i think ellie you put it best in the sense it's, it's like extremely dehumanizing but they're almost sort of made to be this sort of side character and the question on both spaces is very much like what do they sort of like how do they sort of benefit me in my life or how i feel about myself and so on i don't know if that's an analysis you'd agree with but yeah i think um i think what you've what you've outlined there actually is um a symptom of like i think what i noticed when i was doing this work and like having spoken to people who work on this stuff since i think it's a symptom of this incredible lack of confidence that that our side of this issue has Mm. um i think the right has not only been phenomenally successful in creating effective messaging i think it has been really successful at convincing us that everyone agrees with them yeah um and even i feel that like when i'm on I was on Politics Live a couple of weeks ago and um, I thought I was going to have to talk about um, this stop the boats thing that uh, Suella Braverman is doing because it, it that came out the day before I went on and I didn't. But I was really nervous mm. um, about having to speak about that. And I think, I think when you're an organization or an individual who has to, who's sort of communicating about this and trying to persuade people, I think you sort of feel as though you're surrounded by people who are pointing spears at you. Mm. Um, but actually what our research shows in this, in this um, paper is that around one in four people have quite solidly progressive views mm. on asylum seeking. And only around one in 10 have these like really hardline sort of horrible views people who are like not persuadable so in our what did you have to you had to you had to agree with some like horrendous statement in our uh in our uh paper to make to be sort of filtered into that i think it was yeah i think it was something like that border guards had the right to shoot at you if yeah. you came here illegally so that hard line so only one in ten people have those kind of like Suella Braverman level views. And then between six and se- six or seven in 10 people were just like not really sure what they thought. They sort of agreed with some stuff. They didn't agree with other stuff. Mm. They were, um, pers- we called it persuadable. Mm. And um, I don't think we should waste any time on those hardline people who... Mm extremely opposed to refugees. In fact, I think we should be pleased when we alienate them. Yes. Because that means that we're actually saying something meaningful if we alienate them. And it also means that we're not doing the damaging work of repeating right-wing frames. Uh Mm. Um, But I think that we should be really careful not to mistake persuadable people for those people. Because persuadable people, by their definition, will say things that are really problematic and they will say things that we would agree with because um they're not particularly engaged with politics they um they kind of absorb politics passively in the same way as i 
absorb like what's going on with the Kardashians passively or like what's going on in the cricket passively. Mm. And they tend to just sort of regurgitate things that they hear. And it's not because they're stupid. It's because they're not really paying that much attention. So they're kind of looking for opinions that they can absorb um, easily. And um, and I think the biggest mistake, one of the biggest mistakes that we as people who support the rights of refugees have made is confusing those people with the hardliners, mm. thinking that they're unpersuadable and yeah. thinking that we have this huge sort of tidal wave of hate that we're having to contend with. Mm. And yet, even in the current context, um, although this report was actually done in 2020, where things were not quite as bad as they are now, but even, but it was still quite bad. Even then, we still found that 64% of people were persuadable and 24% of people were actively progressive. Mm. So I think the actual picture is a lot less bleak than, than we, uh, than the, um, you know, the media, the government would have you believe, but I think we're lacking the confidence of like on our side to make the persuasive arguments. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that's very, that's very, that's very correct. I think, I think this idea of people being persuadable and the vast majority of people having a kind of a, a, a sort of sort of grab bag of different attitudes on different things is something that is obscured very much, as particularly if you spend a lot of time online, where um, where the way of attracting attention is by taking hard stances. Um, sort of one way or the other and even though uh, particularly what happens on what happens on twitter uh, sort of shapes and and contours the talking points of uh, of the media and of politicians it doesn't mean that it's reflective of the of the attitudes or the persuadability of 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 individual people um and there does seem to be I think there's a bit I think that from our side there is a bit of um, I don't know if you agree with this or not Ellie but there seems to be a bit of denial of how much of this rhetoric has to be undone um, because it's 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 decades of this stuff it's a kind of it's been a kind of slow steady drip poison and as you correctly pointed out one or two things that Nick Griffin had to say for himself uh, back in 2009 uh, are things which are uh, repeated by uh, by mainstream politicians now with um, with no particular acknowledgement of 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 their of their source or kind of what what area of politics this stuff is coming from. Even one um, one thing was um, uh, one thing that uh, that Starmer said not that long ago was literally one of Griffin's talking points that he used to that he used to say on question time um which I was I have to say was quite startled and disheartened <laughs> to hear so I wonder if like where you think the right place to start off in this probably quite slow and laborious and probably quite thankless task of undoing these decades of um of sort of steady sort of steady drip poison both from the media and from the political class because i think that the idea that you that you could 
form if you spend a lot of time around um, around online leftist spaces is that you start in straight away with all borders of violence and let's work back from that. And I think that that is probably not a very productive line to take. So I wonder what you think is the kind of, is the first, is sort of the first steps to having these conversations. Well, I think the first thing to say is from my experience of like talking to people who work on this stuff, yeah, I don't think that there's any, um, underestimating of the amount like of the amount of damage that's been done and how long it's been gone on for i think the problem is that i'm not sure that there is the belief that it can be undone mm. and i think that's that's what's wrong um because i do think we're in a situation at the moment where the british people have never heard for in my lifetime at least they have never heard clear, resonant, persuasive, repeated messages mm. that support the rights of refugees to come to this country. Yeah. Like they've never heard that. They never they didn't hear it in the Blair years. Um they of course they didn't hear it in the Cameron years. I'm sorry to say I don't even really feel like they heard it from Jeremy Corbyn. I don't remember any particularly persuasive arguments coming out of the Labour underneath. Mm. No, I think I think him. I think Corbyn went down the went down the pity route, actually. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's for a whole other podcast, yeah. but yes, yeah. I, I'd agree. Um, and then, of course, you know, Keir Starmer has, um, you know, decided that he's going to make sure there's as little space as possible between him and the Conservatives on this issue. So, you know, and then we've got the entire media, apart from maybe The Guardian and The Independent, um, that is, has, you know, in vicious uh, coverage of this mm-hmm. issue. So I think the first thing is to recognize the position that we're in. It's not that we're in a country where everyone hates refugees. It's that we're in a country where really the main argument that people are hearing all the time is one that's viciously right wing. Mm. And even in that context, there's still a lot of people who are undecided. And in terms of how we change the tide, well, what we recommended in this paper, because obviously we have, like, as you say, the majority of the media and the political class thinking a certain thing that we don't find helpful, to put it mildly. Um, What we've recommended in this paper is that you start by talking to the people um, who we know, that 24% of people that I mentioned earlier who are solidly on side, um, we used a phrase in the report, which is don't preach to the choir, mobilize the choir. Uh-huh. Mm. So what you want to do is you want to give those people messages that energize them, that make them feel excited, um, that make them feel passionate, that they then can use those messages to go and have arguments with persuadable people in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw this happen firsthand when I was interviewing lots of people in various parts of the country. Um, in 2016 about Brexit, that the Leave campaign was actually, this is one of the things that it did that I feel like has got less uh, recognition than it than it possibly should have. The Leave campaign was really good at arming people in their communities who were like really into leaving the EU with persuasive arguments that they used to persuade their family and friends to vote Leave as well. In fact, I remember interviewing a bunch of guys in a boxing club in Rill and they'd all voted leave apart from one guy who'd voted remain 
And when I asked him, you know, I asked them all if there was a referendum again tomorrow, how would you vote? They all said leave. And the guy who voted remain said he would vote leave as well Mm. because he had been convinced by all of his friends that leave was the right way to go. So I think creating arguments that we know are persuadable but that energize the people who already agree with us is the way that we can make our message spread without having to rely on politicians who I just don't think will help us here and without having to rely on the largely sort of kind of quite ultra conservative media when it comes to this, when it comes to this issue Mm. and many other Mm. issues. Um, so, and the, the, I won't go into detail about the substance of the messages because the paper does that itself, but that's kind of, that's sort of where I think that we need to start. And yeah. I know I keep saying this, but like actually having faith that people are much, the average person in this country is much nicer than like the Daily Mail or mm-hmm. like the Tory front bench would have you believe. Yeah. One of the questions that I had, because I completely agree with what you said, especially the last part about like the average person being like not having anywhere near as much like sort of vitriol as like the right wing uh, papers and media in this country would have. And like I, my parents, like, and I grew up in a place where it was like very, very Brexit in Kent and like very kind, like one of those sort of places that you wouldn't imagine would be particularly pro-refugee. Um, but I'm always like constantly surprised when I like, you know, see uh, initiatives around like local initiatives, especially like led by religious groups, for example, to like really welcome refugees in how, um, like how that actually is met with a lot more warmth than I, um, expect. And I really have to then really think about, well, where am I sort of getting these sort of messages from, which is to say, but I do wonder like how, whether you had any thoughts about the way in which like the internet and social media and like the ways in which like social media platforms, um have kind of like shaped this debate in the sense that when i think about the right-wing media and especially it's kind of like seemingly more dependent on social media to take its cues from um it does sort of feel like part of the ramping up of the anti-refugee rhetoric is coming from like is coming from like play is coming from like digitally mediated environments and when you were talking about how um you can find effective messaging uh, when you're sort of like in a community and when you're sort of hearing messages from people uh, and that like that completely makes sense but I wonder for like a time well I wonder like whether like in our time where like you know those types of social environments are kind of rarer to come across or they're much harder to access um, and people are like much more atomized as their social lives sort of like get taken up more by technology is it going to be harder to sort of like make those arguments or is there like can you still apply that to digital environments? Which is to kind of say, to summarize that, um, do you think that like spreading and uh, making effective like pro-refugee messages that aren't reductive, um, can that be possible in like a, in spaces that are more and more digitally mediated? I think um, I think you're definitely right that people are more atomized. When I was uh, running class think tank, we did a really long project, uh, which I would love to talk about, but that'll be in a whole other podcast um, called the Race Class Narrative Podcast, which, sorry, uh, report, which is um, based again on some of Anat Shankar Azorio's research in the US. And it is essentially finding, understanding the... Um, as much as I hate this phrase, you'll know what I mean when I say it, understanding the culture wars mm-hmm. or, and anti-woke rhetoric. I also hate that phrase, but, you know, the, 
I, these are the words that people understand um, and finding a language that can sort of neutralize, neutralize it. And a big chunk of that was understanding the lives of working class people in this country, a big chunk of that report. And we did find that people are quite atomized. They generally didn't know the neighbors. They spoke a lot about the loss of community space, like uh, youth clubs closing, parks closing, like places where people, the high street, you know, is not in good shape. Places where people would mix and meet normally have closed down as a, mainly as a result of austerity. People did talk about that. They did feel it. Um, mm. So, so it is harder for people to physically meet and come together. Um, on the other hand, people did one of the, the two things that came out the most um, in terms of uh, what people valued was compassion and mutual respect. Mm. So, I don't think it's led to a diminishing of those values. Um, and I think it's more of a question for you than me about how we actually manage, we create spaces online because I really have the technological aptitude of a boomer trying to work like FaceTime, you know. So um, it's really for people like you rather than me to think about how we can create spaces online that kind of cultivate those um those values. And then the other thing that I would mention as well is that one thing that really came out to us really strongly is that the working class in this country is defined mainly by its diversity. Mm -hmm. That the further up the class spectrum you go, the less diverse people become. The further down you go, the more diverse people become in terms of a whole range of metrics from gender, religion, um, ethnicity, political views, you know, uh, even lifestyles, you know, like actually working class people have different lifestyles, different incomes. Um, and so if you're working class in this country, you're much more likely to be to mix with people who are different to you in your workplace, you know, in the pub or wherever it is that you do your socializing. So I think the raw ingredients are still there and how we translate that into online is very is a difficult question to answer, given that the platforms that we have at the moment do seem to amplify people at the extremes. Mm -hmm. And then that is weaponized by the right, because the right really wants to turn this into a battle between sensible British people versus uh, the woke mob. Mm. Yeah. And when the two most visible opinions online are Nazis and teenagers are on Tumblr, you know, because of sort of the the way that these platforms work, that's very useful for the right. So um, I'm not sure what the answer is beyond sort of pushing for mm. more transparency around how uh, platforms amplify certain voices and pushing for change there. Um, so that we have a bit more of a um, diverse and perhaps calmer public sphere online. But that really isn't my expert area of expertise. I think probably what you'd have to say would be more smart than what I have to say on that. I'm sure that's not true. 
No, it's not at all. I mean, it's definitely a thing. I was like, I, I don't know the answer to that either. And I think that's kind of where um, one thing that I was really interested in, and maybe something that we saw we can end this interview on, is where you talk about um, the base and where you talk about like who the people that you can really effectively mobilize and to spread these messages, like and to kind of like basically spread good communication is. And I wondered whether I wondered whether like what you were saying was that maybe there's too much effort or like. For people who, again, are like well-intentioned, but often kind of like find that their communicative uh, strategies aren't really working. Perhaps some of that is coming from the idea that like what you need to do is like persuade people who are like on the other side um, and where more energy and more resources are being put there. Um, there is not enough sort of going into like changing communication. So as a result, you end up with like poor communication that isn't really convincing anyone, but you're also um, allowing basically like as I think, as you mentioned earlier on, like you end up the default ends up being like using the terminologies and using the strategies that like the right have kind of developed um, strategically as uh, the default. And I wondered whether you could sort of expand a little bit just before we end on like why, what the, what you sort of conceive of the base as and what can people sort of do to sort of mobile, like how can that be a more effective way of uh, changing the narrative in the long term? Yeah, so what you've said there is exactly right um, about uh, like when you focus, if you focus all of your um, comms on not alienating the most extreme viewpoints, then you completely neglect the, the base and you inevitably actually your comms become really ineffective, exactly as you said, because um because you've, you're basically re revolving your whole comms around people who don't agree with you. So, um, yeah, so it's very bad uh, in summary. The base, so the way that we figured out who the base was, we asked a series, we asked people, we showed them uh, five pairs of statements and we asked them to choose between those those two statements. So, um well, I'll try and give you an example. So here is a statement that we ask people to choose between. Uh, Genuine refugees must seek asylum in other countries and not break the law by coming to Britain illegally. And the other one was, as caring people, we should do the right thing and treat people who are fleeing danger with compassion. Yes, we put the word fleeing in there. Um, mm. And so those are the those are the two those are an example of so we showed people five pairs of two statements like that and asked them to pick mm -hmm. between the two. We had a few that were like very progressive and we had mm -hmm. a few that like the one that I mentioned earlier that were very reactionary because we wanted to make sure that we actually were capturing progressive people in the base and really reactionary people in the in the opposition is what we called the mm -hmm. the sort of really extreme end. Um, so that's how we sort of found who they were. And in terms of who is most likely to be the base when it comes to refugees, uh, they're more likely to be women. Yeah. Um, aged between 35 and 54. Um, in Scotland and also in the northeast. So like everything yeah. that you've heard about the Red Wall is uh, possibly not true. Also in the race class report, we found that um, actually the south was more racist than the north. Um, and and uh, as you'd expect, more likely to be interested in um, current affairs. Mm. And um, mm. so those are the kind of people. And I think what I would say as well is that one of the reasons, unfortunately, why um, there's so little attention devoted to 
that demographic is because the people who decided the last election actually correlate more with the demographic profile of the opposition, mm-hmm. yeah. which is uh, male, 55 and over, living in the East or West Midlands. Yeah. Um, so like the kind of, uh, I suppose, like the internet term is, you know, gammon, basically. Um, and these are the people, rightly or wrongly, who are, who are perceived to have been the people who decided we had the deciding votes for the last election. And and mm. so I think what we've also seen is that gradually those have become the only people whose opinion seems to matter mm. in our uh, political culture. Um, so, but I think, you know, like, I know that like a lot of the media political sort of ecosystem has tried to forget that the 2017 election happened, which I find very frustrating because I think there's so many lessons, good and bad, to learn from it. Mm. But I think one of them should be that who, like the constituency of an electorate electorate can change significantly from election to election. Mm. And so I think it's not just this issue, but a lot of other issues like climate, uh, redistribution, lots of other issues there's actually a big group of people with progressive views out there that are waiting for somebody to talk to them and represent them and i think could have real power if they were to be joined together um around a vision for something better than what we have now Mm. i think that that is a um surprisingly hopeful because we spent yeah. a lot of time talking about the um, the effect on both our, our cultural, social and political lives of tech platforms. So we normally end on a, yeah, so unless someone smashes up the servers, then everything is fucked. <laughs> um, so it's actually quite nice to uh, mm. to feel that we can end, end an episode with, uh, I suppose, the acknowledgement that things are very yeah. bad now, but that doesn't always have to be the case. And a reminder not to not to let yourself uh, fall into hopelessness because uh, social miracles can happen and mass movements are made up of individual people and if that has to start with you uh, with you challenging Auntie Susan around the around the dinner table then that's then that's how it has to be. Um, I'm so sorry that we have to. Uh, that we have to cut things off now. There is, I think, mm. I feel like we could have this discussion for many, many, <laughs> many hours. But um, yeah, we've we've kept Ellie quite long enough. Um, yeah, well, I was gonna, I was gonna also say, like, yeah, Ellie, you sort of mentioned like other projects you're working on as well, and they all sound really interesting. So we'd love to have you back on to like uh, talk about those at some point. Well, if, if you, you ever want me that. to come on and talk about the race class project, I, I'll literally talk yeah. about it all day. I'd be very happy to talk about it. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, let's, great. Let's make let, let's make that happen soon. But in the meantime, Ellie, if people want to like follow the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, well, Phoebe was right that Twitter doesn't work anymore, but uh, you can try me on at Ellie Mayo Hagen uh, on Twitter. I also have one of those Linktree things that has various other platforms that I use. So yeah, there. And also um, obviously follow Good Law Project as well. Oh, cool. 
And we'll put the link into the report that we talked about on this episode in the show notes. So please do go check that out, read it. Use the, there's lots of like practical guides to so use that as well. It's all really important. Um, this show has been produced by Devon. You can follow them at Devon underscore on Earth if you don't already. Uh, and I think that's it from us. So until next time, we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.